You're listening to audio from Redemption Church of Houston. We are a people who believe that Jesus has invited everyone into his radically inclusive, world-altering way of love. That means that when we gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or in homes throughout the week, you are welcome here. Regardless of your social status, gender, race, sexual orientation, or politics, we want you to fully and actually join, grow, worship, and serve with us. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, Jesus invites you into his radical love just the way you are. And so do we. redemption. Um, I had two weeks off, and I am so happy to be back. Sorry if I'm a little wound up this morning. Um, so let, let me um, give you a, a little bit of a word of warning this morning. So we're going we're gonna to be talking about the concept of grace. And here's, here's my word of warning, or maybe, maybe not warning, maybe um, challenge. Maybe like sincere, uh, kind-hearted pastoral request is this. Um, if you've spent any time in and around the church, I say the word grace, and you're like, I know what grace is. Um, can I just say, uh, maybe not. Okay, like, it's, it's not that y'all are dumb, and it's not that you've been to, like, awful churches or, like, the pastors before me have all been awful and I'm awesome. That, that's, that's not my, my, my point. Um, but I think for so many of us, um, we have some, like, core basic fundamental assumptions about grace that are contrary to actual stories of grace, actual proper theology about grace, like actually what the scriptures repeatedly and emphatically teach us about grace. Um, Maybe y'all don't know this about me, um, but I am all about grace. Like, I, I want you to understand God's love, and, and I guess these are kind of the competing things. If I, if I want us to be known as any, uh, for anything as a church, I want us to be known as the people who, like, really love God in, like, intimate, mystical, beautiful, real spiritual ways, and who actually love our neighbors in ways of justice and self-giving and sacrifice and these things. So I want us to be known as a church that's all about love. But I also, from the very beginning, have wanted us to be a church that's all about grace. And, and I love the idea of grace so much, um, I think perhaps because I got it so wrong for so long. Maybe people tried to teach me better, but whatever I was hearing or whatever was like getting through into my heart, into my mind, into my soul, was not grace. I would have called it grace. When the preacher talked about grace, I would have substituted, substituted this idea of grace in for, for what he was talking about, and I would have been completely wrong. Um, here's, here's what I mean. Um, I don't know. I, I grew up sort of around the church, sort of in the church, but I was not like, I was not a youth group all-star, right? I was never like an insider in the church, never felt like super comfortable, never like had friends from church. Like it just, it just wasn't my thing. We'd go, sometimes we'd go when it was convenient. By the time I was in late high school, I was really wrestling and starting to take my faith seriously. It's, it's not that I had no faith, but I just, I wasn't that kid. And so maybe my experience is entirely wrong, but, but I was having a conversation um, this week with 
uh, Lauren, and she's got this giant job where she oversees like our justice and community partnerships, where she sees, oversees kids, and she oversees um, what remains of our youth group that we're trying to rebuild as we reopen and such this year. Um, but we were talking about like what, is, what does it mean to do youth group well, and we got into this conversation about like what did you actually learn in youth group, or like what did you like uh, kind of internalize from youth group. Not what could you have sat down and actually like written the best essay on, and maybe you could have like written pretty good essays, but like the outstanding like overarching thing that you felt and just had visceral reactions to, this is what it means to be Christian when you were in youth group. Now, maybe you grew up like completely far from the church and didn't have anything, but like your first meaningful sort of real experience with Jesus, with the church, with Christians, with Christianity, like what, what, did, you, what did you learn? Like what, what did you learn to think that God wanted from you or expected from you? Which is like a way of talking about the gospel. It's also a way of talking about like grace, and, and I think for me, when I was kind of around the youth group, it seemed like they cared a whole lot about three things. One was I was supposed to feel deep and immense shame for not being able to keep my hormones under better control than I felt like I was able to keep them under control. Number two, I felt like I was probably supposed to feel a whole lot of shame for occasionally partaking of the beverages that apparently were only meant for adults. Um, like, which is just such a funny thing, and I'm not, like, arguing for underage drinking or something like that, but it's just, like, for, for this to be, like, one of the major things that I take from, like, youth group is feel really shameful about your hormones and feel, like, really guilty about uh, some of your licentiousness. Then, then the third thing was I internalized a whole bunch of guilt and shame about not being more evidently, positively, cheerily, outspokenly Christian in every context. Like those were the three things. Be really loud and over the top about Jesus. Be perfect with your hormones and make sure you don't become an addict. Like I was never gonna become an addict, but like these were the things that youth group cared about. Now, I I use this because this is like a pretty... um, uh, pretty common thing, I think, in our youth groups. I think most of us have experienced something like that if we spend a whole bunch of time in church. And, and I think, like, when it comes down to, like, our core concepts of gospel and grace, there's something about this perverted, poisoned, shriveled, not quite right understanding of Jesus in the church that we learned in youth group that still pervades our ideas of grace. So sometimes, here's, here's the way we um, kind of functionally um, understand grace. Now, I actually had um, a good friend of mine use exactly these words when he explained like what grace was and what God wanted from us. Um, but maybe you wouldn't use exactly these words, but I wonder if, even though you know better than these words, I wonder if these words still might resonate for you just a little bit. I asked this friend, it was a number of years ago, hey, so what do you think God wants from you? It was just a really open conversation. I was getting asked some um, good direct converse, or questions, like no, no judgment, no expected answers, but just like, what, what do you understand? What do you not understand? What do you think? What do you not think? Like, what do you really think in your heart of hearts that God wants from you? He said, well, I, I think like he obviously doesn't want me to do the really bad stuff, um, but as long as I like haven't killed anyone or something like that, then I I think there's grace, I think there's forgiveness, I think there's like space, as long as every morning when I get up, I can look at myself in the mirror and say, I'm gonna try harder than I did did yesterday, and 
um, I'm going I'm to keep going and try to improve a little bit. And, and there's, there's grace. So like the extent of grace and forgiveness and gospel in, in my good friend's mind was, well, as long as I continue operating basically in good faith, then, you know, God won't be too harsh on me. Okay, um, my basic contention is most of us operate as if this is what grace is. Um, and I don't want to, like, I don't want to shame you. I'm, I'm not trying to, like, um, stab you or uh, call you out in front of anyone. But, but like, if, if this is at all, like, what you think grace is, can I just suggest, and honestly from this morning's text, um, show you this, this is um, a thin, shriveled, um, impotent, worthless version of grace and has nothing to do with the explosive, potent, um, exorbitant kind of grace that the New Testament and honestly the Old Testament are all about. Okay, so, so for the sake of definition, let me, let me give you two pieces of information. When I talk about grace, I mean two things. One, I mean it's absolutely free. Grace isn't based on your good intentions. Gra- grace isn't based on your continuing good faith efforts. Grace isn't based on you having not done something that's overly bad. As long as you've only done a little bad, then there's grace. You know, grace is absolutely free or it's not grace. That's number one. Number two is grace has nothing to do with your intentions, your initiation, your trying hard, your wanting better, your, your attitude, your heart, your repentance. Grace has nothing to do with any of these things. Grace has nothing to do with your faithfulness. Grace only has to do with the initiative of the divine. Grace has to do with God breaking in and doing something for you that you couldn't do for yourself, haven't done for yourself, wouldn't do for yourself, never would have gotten around to doing for yourself. Grace is God's action and grace is absolutely free. These, these are the, the twin components of what grace really is. And when we start to get that, as, as challenging as that is, as much as that raises real questions of should we not then sin all the more, right? Like, like all the questions of the New Testament then goes in to about grace, we, ha- we have to cling to these two, absolutely free and divine initiation. If we will cling to these two, we will end up um, way better than uh, our youth group selves did. Okay, um, here's what I want to do. Uh, I want to read Mark. We've only got like six more weeks in Mark, believe it or not. Uh, chapter 14, starting in verse 66. Um, let me set one piece of uh, scene for you, which is um, we've just left off um, Jesus' first trial. Jesus is um, in front of the high priest and he is being rejected by his brothers, by his kinsmen, by his um, religious peers, by his social peers, by the people around him who claim to love the same God, serve the same God, read the same scriptures, say the same prayers. Jesus is Um, going through a trial. And what we've seen is Jesus has made his good confession. He has courageously and boldly and insistently like continued on in his path. Um, The Jewish leaders have ripped out their hair and like kind of torn their clothes in pronouncing blasphemy over him. But Jesus, in his courage, has made the good confession in the presence of the highest, most powerful people in the land. Okay, At the same time, Peter was below in the courtyard. And one of the servant girls of the high priest came 
And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with Jesus, the Nazarene. So Jesus is up on trial in front of the high priest. Peter is outside. Think of like a mansion with like a foyer and a courtyard and all these things. And Peter is somewhere towards the opening. There's a bunch of servants around, this young slave girl around. And she comes and she says, hey, I'm pretty sure you belong with the guy up there who's on trial. Now, um, what's happened right before Jesus was on trial is the Garden of Gethsemane, right? It's in the garden where Jesus is praying, and over and over and over, he prays, and Peter and his best friends keep falling asleep. And he's like, couldn't you stay awake with me for one hour? Like, can't you just pray? Like, I desperately need you tonight. Right before the Garden of Gethsemane was the Last Supper, and at the Last Supper, Jesus has told all of his friends, hey, before the the rooster crows three times, you will all fall away. As the Old Testament says, strike the the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. This is about me. I'm going to be struck down tonight, and all of you guys are going to run off. And Peter looks at him, and he says, never me, Lord. Jesus looks back at him and says, before the rooster crows twice, you will have denied me three times. This is what's going to happen tonight. So Peter, out in the courtyard, he has heard Jesus' prophecy about himself. He's heard Jesus say, I'm about to die tonight, and you guys are all going to abandon me. Peter says, never me. I'm not going to abandon you. They come and they arrest Jesus. They take him into the presence of the high priest. And Peter follows along with some real courage. Like being here in the presence of these people in the midst of the high priest, he is like playing with his life here. His, his best friend, his Lord, his Messiah, his Jesus, is about to be killed. And if he gets caught, he likely will be strung up with him. Like, the the stakes are very, very high, and I don't want us to underestimate the amount of courage that it took for Peter to be here in the courtyard of the high priest at this moment. But things get real when he's recognized. And this young slave girl, right, and so um, we keep repeating that she's uh, a woman and that she is young and that she is a slave for three, for one reason, but all three of these are contributing to the fact that this, that this person uh, is completely powerless. Like marginalized, marginalized, marginalized. She's a woman and not a man. She's a slave and not free. Um, she is young and not old. She is completely powerless. And so immediately we have this contrast of Jesus up in front of the high priest, like the guy who's in charge of all the other priests, the guy who's in charge of all the other religious folks on trial, like Jesus is up in front of like the powerful of the powerful of the powerful, and Peter is being asked now here directly to make a good confession of his Lord in the presence of the least intimidating kind of person there is. Now, it's an intimidating confession. You're in this place where your Lord is being killed and you run great risk, although this young girl has no power to do anything. You could tell her the truth if you didn't want to deny the Master and Lord who, like, saves you. But verse 68, Peter denied it. I neither know nor understand what you're talking about. And he went out onto the porch. Um, So two things here. One is just kind of physically what, what Peter is doing is he's going outside 
the camp. Like he's drifting away from Jesus spatially and Mark. So the, the metaphor throughout the new, rest of the New Testament is, hey, there are those who are on the inside and those who are on the outside. And the people who are on the outside, they're, they're going to see, but they're not going to see. They're going to hear, but they're not going to understand. And their hearts are going to be hardened and they're going to be lost. And like there, there are these vast warnings about don't drift away, don't go away, don't go to the outside. And here Peter just physically, spatially is headed towards the outside. And I think Mark means something by giving us these kinds of words. Um, number two is, if you're reading in a different translation this morning, I happen to be in the New American Standard Bible. It's a popular, uh, known as pretty literal, like rigid by the book kind of translation. If you're reading any other translation, there's another part of this verse that says, and a rooster crowed. Because later on, we're going to have a second time that the rooster crowed, and Jesus' prophecy is, hey, before the rooster crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. And if we don't have this rooster crow, then apparently the second time is the second time, but we never really saw the first time. And so we're like, wait, is there a verse here that a rooster crowed or not? Can, can I push pause? Right, so I want to talk about grace. I want to get back there. But, but I haven't done this enough because there, there's a textual criticism question here. Now, if this is really boring to you, like uh, look at your iPhone for three minutes and we'll come back and I promise the whole rest of the sermon won't be boring to you. But some of you guys need to know this and like you're going to have real questions because you're going to see these asterisks in, in your uh, New Testament and they say, hey, uh, the best manuscripts don't include this. Or the most important manuscripts don't include this. And, you, and you're trying to understand, like, what, what in the world's going on here? Um, what happens is um, there, there was no printing press, right? Uh, news of the day. No printing press, redemption press, pastor says. Um, so before there was a printing press, everything was copied by hand. So we have these thousands of hand copies of the New Testament. And hand copies are called manuscripts, right? That's just what it means, hand copies. So in these manuscripts, there are errors. There are always errors. There are millions of discrepancies among the thousands and thousands of copies. Um, this one misspelled something, and that one misspelled something, and that, right? So, so a, a couple of points um, of emphasis here. One is there are vast and significant amounts of errors in the New Testament manuscripts. This is not up for debate. This is demonstrable because we have the copies of these manuscripts. Nevertheless, this doesn't terrify us as Christians for two reasons. One is um, all the errors are on minor things. There is no major issue uh, of doctrine, of belief, of like Christian identity that's like, wait, is it there or is it not? When, when we say there's tons of errors, it's like most of them are misspellings. The bigger ones are like this, where you have some really good manuscripts, like a collection of them. Now, they, they all kind of like, they, they, they work almost geographical, where ones in a certain geography take on certain characteristics and have kind of like a flair and an accent. And like you can tell, looking at this manuscript, oh, it's probably from this school. And you look at another one, so, so they have some characteristics um, that, that, that are shared among them. Here's, here's what I'm getting at. Um, occasionally, you get a stream that's like, has this phrase, and a rooster crowed. And you get another stream, and it doesn't have that phrase, and a rooster crowed. Now, is this significant? Well, yeah, like I want to know if the rooster crowed here or not, and if Mark wrote whether the rooster crowed. But also notice, like we're not wondering, can, can I really be saved or not? Right, so there's something significant, but also not doctrinally significant. 
Okay, so this, this is my point. All the errors um, have to do with interesting things, not doctrinally significant things. Um, but when we come to these things, um, we have a ton of evidence, ancient evidence. We have more manuscripts and more evidence than any other ancient work of literature on the face of the earth in the history of the world, right? We have more and better evidence of our manuscripts than Shakespeare, than uh, Plato, than Homer, than, than anything else. Like we have um, an embarrassment of riches when it comes to the amount of the, the, the number, the ancientness, and the quality of manuscripts when it comes to our New Testament. And there's, there's nothing for us to worry about. But because of that, because we have all of these varieties of manuscripts, there's like a kind of a science that's been built up around it where there are generally accepted um, like accounting practices for like what, what do we make, like what do we, what do, we do here with um, these manuscripts have this phrase and these ones don't. And we start to say, well, which, which manuscripts are earlier? Because we, we want to trust the earlier ones more than the later ones. Or was there a reason that someone might have accidentally inserted this or might have accidentally overlooked this? And there's like a whole list of like um, various uh, amounts of rubric that you can go back through and look and see, oh, I understand. The, the other thing that's really important here is... Uh, most of you guys can't read Greek, um, but you can buy a Greek New Testament called the Nesli Allen text. You can order it on Amazon for less than 100 bucks, and it comes with a whole list on every page of every major variation in every major important manuscript. So my point is, when you come to these asterisks, they don't have to be terrifying, they don't have to be mystifying, even if you never go and become like a text critic and you know, become like an expert with a PhD in this, it's also not anything to be embarrassed about, not anything to be worried about, like it's really okay, and I need to say this long five minute aside, uh, probably about once a year. Okay, aside is... Oh, let, let me make one, one more very short uh, piece of the aside. Um, the, the thing that we kind of hear is, well, there's all these manuscripts, and it's copies of copies of copies of copies of copies. And have you ever played telephone? And, and the worry is that the copies of copies of copies of manuscripts ends up working like telephone. And sometimes you hear, well, hey, we don't actually know what the original manuscripts might have said because telephone. And we're like, I don't know what to say to that. Um, the interesting thing is there's a vast difference of telephone and copying manuscripts. The, the difference is in telephone, when I come and whisper in your ear, there is no repeating of that. You can't go back and double check your work. When you're copying a manuscript, you look, and 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 you look. And it doesn't mean you're going to make no typos. You are going to make typos. But you can check Moreover, the person after you likely has access to your original thing. And so they can see if you made a mistake, they kind of know, oh, well, I can correct that mistake. So telephone does not happen. There's a famous professor named Dan Wallace. Um, he's a New Testament professor who specializes in like gathering and uh, uh, analyzing these, these um, New Testament manuscripts. Um, he runs this thing called the Center for New Testament 
uh, manuscripts or something. Uh, like it's something super boring like that. Anyway, he, he's a well-known scholar, like internationally respected. He does these seminars, or used to, um, called the Gospel According to Snoopy, where the whole purpose of this is to walk people through, hey, you think telephone works? Let me show you by, by just doing this game. I'm gonna give you fragments of a, a manuscript, and it's about Snoopy, which is why he calls it the Gospel According to Snoopy, and I'm going to show you how we can recreate with confidence from your fragments as like non-specialists. I'm going to give you a, a little bit of help and a little bit of rules and a little bit of guidance and we are going to recreate with 100% accuracy what the original manuscripts uh, had. And he, and he does these workshops to just like uh, concretely demonstrate, like I know we all worry about telephone, it's just not how it works when it comes to manuscripts. Okay, end of too long aside. Okay. So Peter denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you're talking about. And he went out onto a porch, and maybe a rooster crowed. Verse 69. The servant girl saw him. Which means Peter is still there. Like, he's gone a little bit, but I think he's probably torn at this moment. Jesus has prophesied, hey, you're going to abandon me. All of you are going to abandon me. Like, before the rooster crows twice, you, Peter, well, not only have abandoned me, you will have actively and positively and emphatically denied me three times. And Peter's there, and he's there in the presence of this powerless girl. And she says, hey, you were with that dude, weren't you? And he's like, uh-uh, I don't know what you're talking about. Who, who, what dude? Oh, there, there's a dude? Like, what, what are you talking about? But, but he's still there. So this little girl begins once, made it, once again to say to the bystanders, this is one of them. So she like escalates the situation where at first she is not terrifying at all. She is a servant, she is young, and she is a female. Not terrifying at all. Now she's shouting to all the bystanders and Peter has to get like actually a little bit scared. Oh man, there might actually be consequences for how I answer this question or don't. Verse 70. But again, he denied it. After a little while, the bystanders were again saying to Peter. So it's no longer her saying it. It's no longer her saying it to them. It's all of the rest of them realizing, like there's real escalation here. The, the stakes are rising, and they say to Peter, surely, like I'm confident, I know you are one of them and I even have corroboration for you are a Galilean too. This dude's a Galilean, you're a Galilean. What are you doing here? This cannot be coincidence. So there's corroboration, there's evidence, there's escalation, there's like this whole um, chorus of voices rising against him and suddenly the stakes are very, very high. Is Peter going to declare his allegiance to Jesus in this moment or not? Um, sort of coincidentally, this Friday night, I have a good friend. I'm, I'm on the board of this seminary. It's this small like startup seminary that's trying to do things kind of differently, trying to get, help people get like really, really good at Bible. I'm trying to make it accessible to everybody. They do a bunch of online stuff. We're doing some cool stuff with um, the Bible Project guys. Um, 
Anyway, uh, we're doing a, a seminar here Friday night, 7 o'clock. We'll have wine and some light snacks, and we're going to talk. And I have this president of a seminary who's going to sit up here and explain, hey, I think um, according to the Gospel of Luke, the concept of faith has more to do with allegiance than it has to do with knowledge. And he's going to make the case from the New Testament. It's going to be fascinating. If you have friends that like, are interested in this sort of thing, who are like, kind of interested in Jesus and don't come here, or go to another church, like bring them, make it a date night, make it a fun night. We're going to have uh, child care for kids under five, but if you can, just get a babysitter, leave them at home. We're going to have a blast come Friday night. But, but they're asking Peter in this moment, like, will you declare your allegiance to Jesus or not? But Peter began to curse and swear. I don't think this means he cusses. I actually think it's way worse than that. He's like calling down curses from heaven on Jesus. Like, not just, I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, uh, uh. He is with everything in his being saying, I do not know that guy. Curse him. Cursing is such a weird thing. Because, like, you, I, I like, uh, not that I want to curse, but, but, like, my point is, like, we underestimate the significance of what he's doing here because he doesn't drop an F-bomb. And we think, like, the F-bomb's the worst thing you can say. This is the worst thing you could say. Like, when Peter looks back at his whole life, he's like, what's the worst thing, most um, destructive thing, like, the most cowardly thing, the most faithless thing, like, the most lie-filled thing? What is the worst thing that Peter ever said? It was this, when he began to curse and to swear and to say, I do not know this man you are talking about. And a rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him, before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he began to weep. Like he runs off, breaking down, bursting in to tears. Okay, so, so this, this is the end of this morning's text. Um, go and be encouraged. Okay, but... So, so I started this morning by saying, hey, I want to talk about grace. Um, here, here's what I mean. I want grace to become the kind of thing that anchors your soul. Um, in fact, I want grace to be the thing that dominates the way you read the text. And I think the way that if we just left right here, I think most of us would be like, okay, but where's grace in this story? And, and I just want to suggest we have not yet read the text well. We have not read it correctly quite yet. Because I think in this moment we're like, God, Peter's just like broken and he sucks. Jesus just gave the good confession. Here Peter crumbles in front of like the least resistance ever and he goes away and cries about it. And we could like shame him for that and like, you know, tout our masculinity or something. Like, like do, but, but these are bitter tears, it seems like, when we read it. And, and I think basically our takeaway is, well, sucks to be Peter. Or, well, don't be like Peter. Or, well, at least Jesus wasn't like Peter. And I think the third one is closest to right. But I think there's something significantly more that we can get to. If we, in this moment, say, wait, where is grace? 
Right? Every time we come across a challenging passage of of Scripture, every time we come across a how does God act, what is God's attitude towards me, like what does he want from me, what does he expect from me, what's the gospel, what's the good news, what's forgiveness, like we need to ask the basic question of what is grace. Okay, so let let me just, um, I want to answer that. I want to get there, but before I get there, can can we actually ratchet up the level of condemnation we have for Peter here? Okay, here's the reason I want to do it, because the the rest of the New Testament does. And and I think um, if we ask, God, I wonder what Peter was feeling in this moment. Um, I wonder what we feel in moments like this. And I wonder what we feel about the people around us who we think have failed like Peter. Right, because Peter has done something pretty despicable here, and I think if you have time to process it, and then you read your New Testament, and you hear some things it says about people like Peter in this moment, I think we're like, wow, Peter is just like, he better watch out. And, and I think there's a really strong, uh, supposedly biblical, like apparently good faith to the text, argument to be made about Peter's condemnation in this moment in significant ways, um, according to a couple of things that we could characterize Peter as, and I think it's just inarguable that we would characterize Peter as these things. One is this word for deny that Peter has done several times to his Lord, about his Lord, three times he has denied. This word later on in Jude 4, in 2 Peter um, 2, 1, it's used of false prophets and false teachers, who secretly introduced destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. So Peter and Jude are warning, hey, watch out for the false prophets. They will deny Jesus, even as they claim to teach wonderful things about Jesus. Watch out. First John says it this way. In fact, if anyone denies the Son, They do not have the Father. The only way to have the Father is to confess the Son. If you confess the Son, then you have the Father also. You deny the Son, you deny the Father. 2 Timothy 2 warns, if we deny him, he will also deny us. Okay, so you're like counseling Peter. He comes to you after this. He says, I just denied Jesus three times. And you're like, Peter, I don't know what to tell you. You're lumped in with the false prophets. Like, this is terrible and rough. Right, so there's deny. Um, Number two, I think Peter is ashamed of Jesus. Right, so there's this theme of, hey, when Jesus shows back up, we want to make sure that we're not shrinking from him in shame when he shows up. I actually really like this metaphor because like as I behave and try to act in good faith and try to like um, continue pleasing Jesus with my everything, I'm like, if Jesus showed up right now, would I be shrinking back in shame or would I be like, I don't know, maybe I made a mistake, but at least it was in good faith. We can talk about it. Like that's kind of my, my basic thing is I want to operate in good faith. I think Peter would be filled with shame because he is not operating in good faith. He didn't tell them, no, I don't know Jesus. Oh, I didn't realize I knew Jesus. Oh, that Jesus. Oh, that Galilee. Oh, right. He's, he's in no way operating in good faith. Um, actually, um, more than just the theme of the New Testament, Jesus himself in this very gospel, in Mark chapter 8, verse 38, here's what Jesus says. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words 
in this adulterous and sinful generation, I, the Son of Man, will also be ashamed of them when I come in the glory of my Father with the holy angels. You're ashamed of me? No, you're not ashamed of me. I'm ashamed of you. Okay, so, so we've hit two like um, pretty condemnatory passages so far. Um, one is, you deny Jesus, it ain't going good for you. Number two is, you're ashamed of Jesus, he's gonna be ashamed of you. Here, here's the third one. Um, Revelation 21 is this beautiful chapter. It's the one where um, God wipes away every tear from every eye and he fills us with all the good things and there's like finally resurrection and glory comes to earth and behold, God's dwelling place is finally with humanity in this picture of ultimate like beauty and restoration. Right after all of this, the very next verse, uh, Revelation 21.8 says this, but as for the cowardly, Wait, Peter seems pretty cowardly here, right? He knows the truth. He won't stand up for the truth just because of his fear. If anyone's cowardly, Peter's cowardly. But as for the cowardly, the unbelieving, or the faithless, is Peter trusting in Jesus right now? Like courageously continuing to walk even though he doesn't understand? Or is he acting with like complete faithlessness here? Well, we've, we've listed off two things. We're going to list off a bunch more. But the very first two hit Peter nail on the head. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the abominable, the murderers, the immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars. Right? So we can take the really vague ones like um, abominable or immoral or something. But, but like cowardly, faithless, liar. And we got Peter nailed three times in this one verse. But as for all of these, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is called the second death. All right, so um, Peter says, I've denied Jesus three times, and he's like, what do I do? And you're like, well, let me read you some scripture. Okay, so my, my point this morning is not, well, scripture's wrong. Not, not there, right? Um, my point is, I think we vastly misunderstand scripture. There's a whole lot of nuance there. Uh, I'm already at 37 minutes, no time to go into that. God, that was amazing. Um, just like got myself out of a whole hornet's nest here. Okay. Um, (laughs) Here's my real thing. Very sincerely, I think the way we read scripture is wrong and I think the way that we read scripture has to always come back to the dominating ideal of grace. Are, are there problems for this reading of scripture? Yeah, absolutely. We gotta work through some of the challenging things. I have ways that I do that. I can share with those more with you offline. But like my basic way is when I come to these, I'm like, yeah, I know it says it and I know there's a really strong warning here and I don't want to do that. I don't want to encourage bad faith actions. There are real warnings for these bad faith actions and yet we see Peter here in the midst of like the most bad faith actions he can do. Cowardly, lying, immoral, like uh, what, what was the other one? Uh, faithless, right? He's denied his master and Lord uh, and he is filled with shame. And I think we end the passage when we're not reading it in a grace-filled way and we're like, sucks to be Peter. Man, this is not gonna go well for you. The, the problem with this reading 
is this is not at all what Mark is communicating in this text, and this is not at all what Peter is experiencing in this moment. Go back to the last verse with me. Let's read it again, verse 72. So immediately a rooster crowed a second time, said Peter has just brought down curses and sworn, I don't know the guy, I don't know what you're talking about, the rooster crows. There's like a strong pattern of dawn happens at the second crowing of the rooster, like there's something literary going on here. Suddenly, daybreak is upon them. So Peter, yes, he's being exposed by the light as dawn breaks, but dawn is a sign of literary hope, of hopefulness, of the night is passing and it is not all lost. There, there's a note of hope even in this. And Peter remembered. What did Peter remember? Yes, we know Peter remembers that Jesus says, before a rooster crows, crows twice, you will deny me three times. But you know what Peter also remembers? The very next statement that Jesus made after that. In the same speech, Jesus quotes the Old Testament. He says, you strike the shepherd, the sheep will scatter. All of you are going to deny me. I promise you, all of you are going to run away. But when I get up, I'm going to Galilee, and I want you to meet me there. I will be waiting on you. So as Jesus is upstairs, he's made his good confession at the risk of his life in front of the most powerful people in his city. They've pronounced him as a blasphemer. They've sentenced him. They have um, started beating him. They've actually covered his head. This, this is the last passage that Brandon preached last week. They've covered his head, and they've started slapping him around, saying, hey, you're a prophet. Tell us which one of us hit you being actively mocked for his false prophecy as one of his best friends is downstairs repeatedly denying him, being cowardly and faithless and a liar. And in the moment that Peter bursts into tears, he remembers Jesus knew that this was coming. He prophesied it. Wait, the prophecy is coming true in this moment. He is a true prophet. He is like exactly right. I see that he's right. And, and more than that, I remember that even in his prophecy, he had like in, injected this Trojan horse of grace. This Trojan horse that he was going to get resurrected, that he was going to go to Galilee, and that he was going to, he was, he was, he was still going to want me. He was still going to wait for me. He was still going to be my leader. He was still going to be my Lord. He was still going to be my Jesus. He's going to Galilee and is going to wait for me. So Jesus being mocked for his false prophecy, as they suppose, and Peter remembers that this prophecy is coming true, and Jesus will call him to himself once again. You see, when we don't read this passage through the lens of grace, we think Peter's faithlessness is the last word. P Peter almost disappears from the Gospel of Mark from here on. We don't see any other direct action about Peter until Easter day when Jesus gets up, the women go to an empty tomb, there's an angel there, and you know what the angel says to the women? He's not here. He's risen go back 
and tell the disciples, especially Peter, that he's headed to Galilee. He's going to wait for him, just like he promised. You understand, when we, when we misunderstand grace, when we take the crappy youth group definition of grace, and we're like, well, as long as I never act in truly bad faith, as long as maybe I've lied, but I'm not a liar, as long as I'm not like faithless, but, I'm, but I like try to be faithful, as long as I'm not like cowardly in the most important moment of my life, as long as, as long as, as long as, then God might forgive me. Then God might have grace for me. Then there might still be a door open for a way back into the presence of God where maybe he'll finally be pleased with me. The problem with that version of grace is it leaves Peter on the outside here. And Peter is weeping, probably some bitterness, probably some shame. Yes, some guilt, but also some worship of his Jesus who has already promised him and already told him, hey, I know you are going to do the worst thing you could possibly do. And it's not even going to be innocent because I'm going to warn you that you're going to do it. And then you're going to lie to me in your bluster that you're not going to do it. And you're still going to do it. You're going to do it. You're going to know you're going to do it. You're going to know that you should do better than doing it. You're going to do it three times. You're not just going to slip up and need a little bit of grace, but at least you acted in good faith. You were going to act in bad faith. And according to the New Testament, According to the New Testament, you are going to deserve wrath and condemnation, and you know what you're going to get instead? Angels in my tomb reasserting, go and tell my disciples, especially, Jesus, especially Peter, I'm waiting on you. I'm headed there before you. I still have love for you. I still have affection for you. I still have intimacy for you. You can be with me again. You denied me. And I know the New Testament says, if you deny me, I will deny you. And yet, here we are. I haven't denied you. Real, absolute, totally free grace. Not because Peter was at least trying hard. Not because Peter wasn't that bad. Not because, well, at least Peter meant well. None of those things are true about Peter. Which means that it doesn't have to be true about us either. Grace isn't just for our accidents. Grace isn't just for our unintentional sins. Grace isn't just when we flex too hard in a moment of bluster. Grace is for our complete apostasy, for our foul-mouthed public renunciation of Jesus, for the worst things we have ever done and could ever imagine doing. There is grace for that. There is absolutely bottomless, limitless grace for you. This is the message of Jesus. This is the message of the cross. And once we get that, we sing hallelujah and amen, and we finally come to understand something close to who Jesus actually is, and there's no room for our efforts, for our bluster, for our faithfulness. Our salvation, our good standing with Jesus, our pleasing Jesus is never on the basis of our own faithfulness, but only his limitless ocean 
of grace. Thank Jesus. Let's pray. God, I want to know this grace, to swim in this grace, to celebrate you in this grace, to build my life on this grace, to build this church on this grace, to find radical freedom, acceptance, embrace, warmth, and affection. Not because I deserve anything, but because you are overwhelmingly magnificent and patient and kind and joyous. And you woo, you woo us even at our worst, God, for our hardness and our distance, for our doubt, for our denials. Forgive us. Draw us back to you. Fill us with your spirit. Make us like Peter who became courageous because of your spirit, who stopped denying you because of your spirit, who finally had strength instead of cowardice, cowardice, finally had truth instead of lies, who finally had your faithfulness instead of his own because of the work of your spirit. Would you do that within me? Would you do that within us? Jesus, hear our songs. Be with us as we sing. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, get coffee with a pastor or visit us on a Sunday, then go to redemptionhou.com. And please know today that you are fully loved and fully accepted just the way you are. We hope to hear from you soon.